0: Journey back to a time when Fred and Barney were lonely.
1: You want a date? Tonight
0: we shower. Wilma and Betty were single. Dino was
2: just a (laughs) pup. And Rock Vegas was the place to go. uh, The Flintstones in
1: Viva Rock Vegas. (laughs) Welcome to Unloved Sequels, the podcast that brings you a blow-by-blow critique of Hollywood's worst-rated sequels. You know, the ones that some people think should never have been made. We're your hosts, Michael. Say hello. Hello. And I'm Claire. In this episode, we're going back in time, then going back a bit further for the prequel. It's Vegas, baby, but not as we know it. Michael, what's the movie?
0: Yabba-dabba-doo! We're heading to (laughs) Vegas with our favourite prehistoric family, yes, it is The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. I haven't been. I feel like that, the only
1: reason you chose this movie was so that you could open with a yabba dabba do.
0: <laughs> yabba dabba do. Flintstones, <laughs> meet the Flintstones. There's a yabba dabba do I'm not do even the first time. one singing. You are well into oh. this. I have I have really watched, I bought the um, cartoon box set for this episode, so you pre- be prepared of me with quotes. Oh, wow. Deep dive. Deep dive. Deep dive. All 600 episodes. I haven't watched all 600. <laughs> so have you watched them all? Mm. They're really mm. long. I imagine them being like 15 minutes and each one's like 27 minutes long. And I was like, this is long for a cartoon. Oh, wow. So, but yeah, no, they're great fun. I've had oh. great fun with them. Though Fred Flintstones was an utter, utter arsehole to barney every episode just want to put that out there i was like why are you friends with him every I mean, episode. he's kind of an asshole to barney in the movies as well yeah but every episode that's like every day of their life they're like what what, what is, yeah. like, cavemen die at 30 so you know like 600 episodes that's a big chunk of 30 <laughs> they're adults in it yeah why would you talk to him why would you talk to him so here we are we are covering our first prequel so it's not a sequel, is everybody. It? Yeah, it's our first prequel. This is our first prequel? It's our
1: first prequel. I feel prequel. like we've done a prequel before. No, I think this is our first one. We're going to have to go back and check. Don't at us, though. If it's
0: not the first one, One don't of them out there will do it. So, the Flintstones prequel opened on the 28th of April, 2000. So I was like, oh, start of a new millennium. Was that the millennium
1: game? Yeah, in my mind, I kind of put... It earlier than that, it doesn't well, the first one come to me out. that it was as late as that. There was quite a big gap,
0: wasn't there, between the two movies? It yeah, like 1994. Years. Yeah, 1994. So it's quite yeah. a big gap. So it went on to make 59.5 million against a budget of 83 million. Ouch, <sighs> mm. That's ori- gonna sting. It, yeah, it really would. The original took 341.6 million against a budget of 46 million. So You can see why they gave me a bit more money Oh of course It has a runtime of 91 minutes So looking at the release date And what was coming out There was not much competition in the way of Family movie movies Kind of like in that marketplace at that time So I was trying to figure out why it underperformed so badly You know Because the first one didn't have Mm. great reviews either So I was a bit kind of like Why did this perform so badly So I did my normal deep dive at the 2000 box office it ended up number at number seventy at the end of year worldwide box office. It's one mm. of the lowest movies we have covered. Which really hot. Yeah, that's quite play. low. So the top ten grossing movies of two thousand were starting at number ten and going up. Uh, number ten is What Lies Beneath. Oh. Cool. Number nine is X Men. Number eight mm-hmm. is The Perfect Storm. Number seven is Meet the Parents. Number six is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Number five is Disney's Dinosaur. Number four is What Women Want. Number three is Castaway. Number two was Gladiator. And number one was Mission Impossible 2. And I feel like now we have more of an understanding with Mission Impossible and they seem to get more attention in the press than they did back then. I Mm. didn't even know that Mission Impossible 2 was the highest grossing movie of nice. um, But Mission Impossible 2 Only took a worldwide total of 546 million Really? What is a really low Number for the top grossing movie Of that year compared to what, it it is. Is what I think is really weak So for comparisons for that I went back and looked at what the highest Grossing movie of 1999 Was And it was Star Wars Episode 1 With a worldwide of course total it was. Well, was a worldwide total of 924 million. That's more the number I'm looking for. True.
1: Yeah. So what happened in 2000? Where was everyone
0: if they weren't in the cinema? So, and then I went and looked at the highest growth movie, what was was in 2001. And that was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone, wherever you are, whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, That took 975 million worldwide. Okay. So you're looking at this really weird middle year where Hollywood just had a shocking year.
1: So, so you start... was the millennium bug real after all?
0: Like well, In Hollywood, happened? maybe. So after That's that, really weird. and it, it's kind of weird because it seemed that smaller budgeted movies were more popular than these big budgeted studio movies that were coming out they were severely underperforming so I went back and looked at below the top 10 and I looked at the whole box office for of that year and it seemed there were so many movies that come out that year that are still relevant and still love today but each one only dropped by 3 million each one each entry like for the top 30 movies only dropped by thirty by by three million each time. So there wasn't a massive right. gap between one and five, like there is today or between Harry Potter or there was between Star Wars. There was just these small drops. So it was just an overcrowded yeah. thing. There was lots of things coming out. So I'm going to give you a list. Prepare yourself for this, Claire. Because I made a list of films and I kept trying to stop me writing down the, these titles. And I couldn't because I was like, that's in this year, and that that he made that money. I was so shocked. So are you sitting for this list? All of these movies came out. They weren't in the top ten, but they all came in the same kind of ballpark. So we have Scary Movie, Charlie's Angels, Erin mm-hmm. Brockovich, mm-hmm. Unbreakable, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, wow. Miss Congeniality, Big Mama's House, Nutty Professor to the Club, The Emperor's New Groove, Scream Free, Coyote Ugly, Final Destination, Billy Elliot, Bring It On, Road Chip, Chocolat, Hollow Man, Gone in 60 Seconds, Vertical Limit, 102 Dalmatians, Me, Myself and Irene, The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio, Space Cowboy, The Whole Nine Yells, The Cell, Fantasia 2000, Bizdazzled, Statch, Snatch, Pay It Forward. The list was just, every time I went down the list, I was like, my God, that's in this year i remember the attention this movie got i am shook so it starts giving you but, a reason yeah. why this movie didn't perform well not because it's where it should be because there's movies that make more money that have worse reviews but you can start saying that people were just in flooded with movies they want to see and the press was covering them mm. people were just going to watch movies and they like I, I was i do you remember the attention that crouching tiger hidden dragon got when that came out yes of course and that, even, that wasn't even in the top grossing films worldwide that year that's mad and to think of things like what lies beneath was in the top 10 and i don't remember that getting the press coverage what some of those movies that weren't in the top 10 getting yeah that's a really but, weird chart it was kind of like a hard year for Hollywood because they didn't make yeah. money back off off their
1: budget. Yeah, and a movie still. like this is not going to compete against titles like those.
0: No, but I think they thought that those movies would do better than yeah. these movies. But they obviously, people were more into independent films like Chocolat and things like Billy Elliot than they were about yeah. the Flintstones. Um, I also think it's that I think they were going for that niche area where. Because the Flintstones came out in the 60s and it was in that my parents were, like a lot of parents who were born in this, grew up in the 60s, were then being parents in the 90s, having kids in the 90s. Yeah, and I everything goes if, in
1: 30 year cycles, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and I think that 2000 was a little bit too late to find that little niche yeah. because it just didn't. Well, yes, because
1: we were the kids that watched the Flint to our generation of kids. Watched the Flintstones because our parents put it on the telly for us because of the nostalgia factor, in the same way that I put things like the Smurfs and My Little Pony on for my kids now. Yeah. By 2000, we were 20. We're not going to be watching family movies. We're going to be watching Chocola and Billy Elliott and yeah. What Lies Beneath because we were pretentious 20 year old movie people. Mm. And so we weren't watching those family movies, and then I guess the the fa- the demographic that would watch that movie aren't that fussed about the Flintstones because they're not the ones that watched it when they were kids because their parents exactly. watched it when they were kids. Exactly. So it. So yeah, if they'd caught that sequel, that two-three year sequel window, they would probably have got away with it in ninety-six,
0: ninety-seven. Yeah. So like the Flintstones at the moment the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas currently sits at. Sits at 602 out of 1,294 of all-time international sequels box office. So it's still in the middle right. of the pack. It's not doing anything. It's sitting there quite happily, you know, bouncing around the middle of all the sequels. So it's, yeah. it's still it underperformed. Maybe it had a too much of a bigger budget. Um, but it's in there quite happily. Ronald Tomato scores, 25% critics and 20% audience. Comparing that to the original, um, 23% critics, 25% audience. So, really? Yeah. So, Oh, it,
1: I was expecting
0: the original to score higher no, than that compared to... both in the same ballpark, and the critics actually preferred the prequel to the original. The audience, who are probably people that grew up watching the original film, did not prefer it to the original original movie. Yeah, yeah yeah. so yes
1: that's really interesting because i had just assumed because you tell me off now for looking at the scores so i didn't look at the scores i was Good expecting hell. that the first movie would have there would have been a, a bigger difference between the reception of the two movies
0: yeah interesting no. interesting mm. it's an interesting conversation because i think this prequel has kind of like disappeared and i feel like the original movie is still so talked about and so relevant due to the cast they had in it Especially mm. with our generation, because those that cast was famous, you know, like to get
1: like... uh yeah. Well I think that's another big issue for the the prequel, isn't it? Is that the the yeah. casting, not necessarily the quality of the performances, but the the pulling power of the cast, yes, for the most part no. is greatly diminished in yeah,
0: this exactly. movie. So, Claire, do you were talking about the cast? Do you have any behind-the-scenes stuff for us?
1: Yeah. Look at that little smooth intro there. Yeah. We didn't even plan that. We're just riffing. No, it we're just, just go going with the good. flow. Uh, so, in terms of returning cast, there's more than you think. Right. But it's not as straightforward as you might think. So there are um the only outright uh reprise of a role from the first movie is Erwin Keyes. He's the only actor who is back in this movie playing the same role that he played in the first movie. Which, but And that role is Joe Rockhead. Now, I had to Google who Joe Rockhead is in the movie because that is not a name that's at the front of my little Flintstones Rolodex. Joe is uh, a neighbour of Barney and Fred. And so he kind of gets talked about a lot. And then when Barney and Fred fall out, Fred goes and hangs out with Joe for a bit. And then oh. he makes up with Barney. He's like his backup friend. So he's yeah. a kind of background character. He was in the TV series as well. He was in the cartoons. yeah. Um, and he was played by Erwin Keyes in both movies. That's the only kind of straight reprise of a role mm-hmm. between the two movies. We do, however, also have Mel Blanc, who he died in 1989 before either of the movies were were made but his voice recordings from the original cartoons were reused and remastered for the character of Dino in both movies. Aww. So that's sort of a, a, a same actor, same role. Yeah, Although it was actually from the original cartoons. And then we move on to the slightly weird, we've got a cast member back, but doing something quite different kind of roles. So we've got Harvey Corman. He plays Colonel Slaghoople in Viva Rock Vegas. So that's Wilmer's dad. Yeah. In the previous movie, he was the voice of the Dicta Bird, and in the original cartoon series, he was the voice of the Great Gazoo. So he's got this history with the franchise, and they've obviously been bringing him back as a kind of cameo in the first movie, and then thought actually let's beef his yeah. part out a bit more for the second movie. Uh, and this was actually his last live-action movie role. He died in two thousand and eight. So that a good song. while after making this movie, but he didn't do any live action performance movies. It's a, nice
0: little, one. a nice little Easter egg for those Flintstone fans. Exactly,
1: exactly. We also have, um, in terms of people who've been in the original cartoon series, um, Anne-Margaret, who sang the Viva Rock Vegas theme in the movie, had played a character called Anne-Marg-Rock, see what they did there in the original cartoon series. So again, they have it's not a straightforward reprise, but they've, they've done a little, like you say, an Easter egg. And then John Stevenson, who uh, is the showroom announcer and also does the voice of the wedding minister in Viva Rock Vegas. Although on screen, that character is played by Walter Gertz, but he's then dubbed by John Stevenson. He was the voice of Mr. Slate in the original cartoon series and also did a few TV movies as Mr. Mm-hmm. Slate as well. There is also, for those who are really paying attention either to the voices or to the credits, there is a voice appearance by Rosie O'Donnell, who plays Betty in the first movie. She does the voice of the octopus masseuse in Viva Rock Vegas. And you say so so that's hear a nice her. Easter egg linking back.
2: Yeah, you yeah. I was I mean, was li-
1: watching it and I was like, who is that? Who is that? And then it, obviously it came up in the credits at the end. I was like, oh, of course it was.
0: Really, when I watched it, it was. I was like I was like, that's Rosie O'Donnell. I knew. I was like, that's Rosie.
1: Yeah, but I don't watch as much American TV as you. So Rosie O'Donnell isn't as high on my radar yeah, of true. people whose voices I'm familiar with as yours. So yeah, so there's on the surface you would go, Oh, there's like when I sat down to write my notes, the first thing I typed was, There's no one from the first film in the second film. And then I did my research, and I was like, it's actually quite a few people, but not in the principal cast and not yes. playing. The characters that they played before. In right. terms of new cast, so we have Mark Addy playing Fred Flintstone, which for me was a, is a bit of a weird casting to cast a British guy in such an American role. But yeah. when we talked about this before we recorded, you pointed out this isn't that long after The Four Monty. Yeah. So he was probably much higher in terms of pulling power at that point than you would perceive him to be. Certainly now he has done other movies. He's very well known in the UK. Um, Speaking of weird casting decisions, Stephen Baldwin playing Barney Rubble, which was played by Rick Moranis in the original movie. That, yeah, that was a weird one for me, but there he is playing Barney. We've got Kristen Johnson as Wilma. We've got Jane Krakowski as Betty. We have, uh, Wonderful Jane Collins as Pearl who Paul Wilmer's mum, playing the younger version of Elizabeth Taylor, who had played her in the first movie. And then we've got Alan Cumming playing the Great Gazoo and also playing Mick Jagged, who is the kind of Mick Jagger ripoff character who appears towards the end of the movie. We yeah. also have some little cameos from William Hanna and Joseph Barbera as guests at the wedding, and they appear in that final number as well. Mm. So that's quite nice, some more little Easter eggs there for the the cartoon fans the movie was directed by brian levant who uh he directed the original flintstones movie we don't often see that we haven't had that for a while where we've had the same director carry through for both installments he also directed jingle all the way he directed beethoven he directed problem child 2 scooby-doo the mystery begins and scooby-doo the curse of the lake monster amongst other things he's got quite an extensive list of credits mm. the writing credits obviously Hannah and Barbera have writing credits because it's based on their characters there's also then weirdly there's two writing pairs have the writing credits for this movie so there's Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont, who have worked together a lot they wrote Leap Year they wrote a very Brady sequel they wrote Josie and the Pussycats which I think came out not long after this,
0: I um, love that and movie. That's why I wrote it down because I knew you do. I knew you do. How can um, you not like a movie with Alan Cummings and Parker Posey in it? Come on. Uh, I it's know, just, no. it's very 90s, but it's just so off the wall. Yeah. i yeah. Being very stoned watching that a few times.
1: And then uh Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., who are another writing partnership, they also wrote on this movie together. They have worked together on. Um, Dick Tracy, Anaconda, Turner and Hooch, Secret of My Success, and Top Gun. So they're quite oh. different lists between those two writing partnerships, but Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. A lot, I mean, again, they have a very extensive list of credits between them, but their most successful movies, arguably, are a little bit older. The, the movie, um, It's No Secret, was originally intended to be a sequel that was going to carry on the story from the first movie. But John Goodman was not interested in reprising the role of Fred Flintstone. Rick Moranis had retired from acting by that stage. And if you can't get them back to play the two main characters, I I can see that that would make production a little bit sticky. So uh, production kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back until they decided in the end, we're going to forget the sequel idea. We're going to recast it and we're going to kind of reboot it as a prequel, which is how we got to what we have. Now, um, I don't really know the casting stories for many of the characters. I know that David Spade was considered at one point for Barney rather than Stephen Baldwin. And I know that Jane Krakowski, uh, she was a bit anxious about taking on the role. Apparently, she um, met Steven Spielberg at an awards due and he was chatting to her and he asked her. Um, I don't know if he outright asked her to take the part or if he just asked her to go and read. She was a little bit reluctant to take on Mm. the part. I think she felt like she would be stepping on Rosie O'Donnell's toes because at that point, obviously, in 2000, late 90s into 2000, Jane Krakowski was a huge TV star
0: Yeah,
1: because she'd been in uh, Ally McBeal. So she was very, very well known. And I think she felt like she would be stepping on Rosie O'Donnell's toes. But apparently Rosie O'Donnell... Wasn't bothered at all by that. She congratulated her on getting the part, um, sent her flowers and a card, and it said, "From Betty Number One to Betty Number Two, now yabba dabba do it." She's oh, quite sweet.
2: Is so sweet.
0: she took on the part from that. Jane really is the winning the winning ingredients in this. Like, yes, she's, just... she's brilliant. I mean i
1: I've seen her in in various things on yeah. TV and in movies, and I've seen her on stage as well, and she's just fantastic in everything i love jane krakowski the the film was nominated for four razzies at the 21st golden raspberry Awards. normally at this point i would say and whichever oscars because we do sometimes get ones that got nominated for oscars as well this did not get nominated for any no. oscars but
0: we would like to also say that the razzies are a piece of shit and we don't really support as yes, work. We just take yes. them for information. We, uh, yes. they are... I
1: do mention. I don't know even really why I bring it up because I mention them, and then every time we mention them, we go, "But it's all bullshit anyway." Because it's just they—they they seem to be easing off on the just hardcore bitching at people like that they yeah. used to. But it used to be really bitchy.
0: Yeah, um, nasty as well.
1: Yeah. So it got nominated for worst picture. It got nominated uh, for worst supporting actress for Stephen Baldwin. Worst supporting actress for Joan Collins, which is an absolute travesty. I think Joan Collins kills it. She knows what movie she's in and she brings it. Fuck you, Razzies. Fuck Um, you. Yeah, fuck you, Razzies. And it also got nominated for worst remake or sequels. It also got seven nominations at the 2000 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, which I didn't even know existed. But there we go. Um, it got seven nominations it got one win which was worst resurrection of a tv show and it also got nominated for um worst supporting actor for stephen baldwin worst song for viva rock vegas by Anne margaret no thank you very much fuck you no fuck you Um, worst on (laughs) worst on screen hairstyle for stephen baldwin i'm not sure i can defend that one worst remake or sequel the remake or sequel, no one was clamoring for. Most unfunny comic relief for Alan Cumming as the great Gazoo and Mick Jagger. Bullshit. So, all bullshit. All bullshit. Um, 100%. yes. And uh, the music. I I know I normally mention the music kind of in passing when I'm going through the cast and creative team, but I think mm-hmm. because. It, the music is so iconic in the Flintstones. So I just wanted to give it an extra mention. Um, So music in this movie was by David Newman, who uh, is part of a very musical Hollywood family. A lot of members of his family have written for movies. He's written for so many movies. I'm going to read you a massive list in a minute. Um, He's also worked with Brian Levant a few times. I think they've they've kind of become frequent collaborators. So they worked yeah. together on the first Flintstone movie. They worked together on Jingle All The Way and the Scooby-Doo movies that I mentioned before. He also did music for um, The Cat in the Hat, Daddy Daycare, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Ice Age, Anastasia, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. I think it was the best original song that he got yeah. nominated for. Bedazzled, which is a movie we both love, 102 Dalmatians, Galaxy Quest, which is one of my favourite movies
0: ever. Yes,
1: (laughs) Never Been Kissed, Uh, Matilda, the original Matilda movie, the um, Danny DeVito one. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill and Ted's uh, Bogus Journey. He also did the arrangements and some scorework on the new West Side Story movie that came out, was it last year, year before?
0: Yeah. He also also did the. He also did the new Bill and Ted movie. What was that called?
1: Yes, I don't know. One. I watched it about three weeks ago. So he's done all the. I can't, he, I can't remember, but he can't remember. But yeah, so he has got phenomenal work, a huge CV, and he's done some fantastic movies. And again, quite unusual that he was involved in both parts of this franchise. So I just thought it would be worth giving him a little special mention for that. Well,
0: funny you should mention him, Claire, because a couple of mm-hmm. weeks ago were you off vacating with your children. I got a chance to catch up with David and we had a nice little conversation. Would you like to hear it? No way. I would love to hear it. Yes, roll the tape. I'm really excited to be talking to the composer of the Flintstones and the Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas, David Newman. David, thank you for coming on the podcast. Day, I really appreciate your time. Sure, it's kind of an
2: unusual thing to talk about sequels, so it's interesting. It yeah. is.
0: People always go, "Why do you cover sequels all the time?" And I go, "Because it's something that never really covers, and they're such a big part of the movie industry these days."
2: Yeah, they're used to. Well, yeah, when well, there, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been around a bit, and um, there was a there was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie maybe it was in the late 80s or 90s called the last action hero yeah and they made a big joke about sequels cuz they 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 were um it it was sort of in the in a dystopian future and they were talking yeah. about die hard 25 and 26 and we just thought that was so funny except that that's sort of what the film industry has become is is basically I mean, I guess you could say it's more like episodic television in a way, but it's not really. It, it it um it it really is movies. You know, we just saw the new Mission Impossible. I mean, how many of those are there now? What six or seven? Or that was or, seven. I'm not sure, but yeah. So you know, it's it it just it was just so weird. Weird when I started, this was just an anathema to yeah. do sequels. I mean, it, it, of course. There was Star Wars and 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 you know Indiana Jones, but they were you know it was a very specific part of the industry and 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 now it's the entire industry of, of feature films at least in theater.
0: It is it's, it is it is an interesting point because it's just like they've taken over everything, <clears throat> and it's just like the world has moved on to this side that everybody just wants to lean into somebody's IP and not do something original anymore because they're so scared of investing money into something
2: yeah it's it's just so weird because you know I started in the 80s so I'm in the I'm going to move you know I'm I'm learning really about movies in the 70s you know I'm 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 uh you know I turned 18 and 1972 I mean that and that you know we're going to movies every weekend in Los Angeles and Westwood which is where all the movie theaters were and we would just we would go to two movies Friday night and two movies you know sometimes a midnight showing of, 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 of something and it was mostly original movies you know yeah. and now um it just seemed the whole movie industry was built on making ip and not uh you know and then if if your ip hits and you can make sequels great but i don't know it's it's just i don't i don't mean to say that it, this is anything bad it's just it's just so weird um you know like when the the marvel thing started it was hard to imagine that would grow to the place that it's grown uh, it's not you know, crazy because isn't it? Well, it's just one, it's just one genre of a of, of, of ton of genres. But I suppose that you could say that streaming and television, um, you know, starting with HBO really, really artistically looking mm. at what you know what to do, just it, it sort of moved there rather yeah. rather than in feature feature films for whatever reason.
0: It's a crazy space to be in. But we kind of like yeah. look at sequels that have underperformed or film films that didn't do as well as the studio expected. Because like most of the time, these movies get really unfairly treated on release, especially when they're a part of a franchise. So we tried to look at movies that have Mm -hmm. been unfairly treated. And we look at the work that's gone into them and we look into and and look at how much work has gone in and how much praise it actually deserves. Because we know some people, I don't think the general public really appreciate how much hard work goes into making a movie. And the different layers and the yeah. craftsmanship in it so we tried to find yeah. love within these things that become unloved what brings us onto yeah. our subject today so because i really wanted to touch base on because you had the chance of composing for the flintstones movie how did you go about doing that when it's such an i had such an iconic ip theme tune in the first place so we knew when you got approached to do the project oh.
2: Well, I had done the first, you you mean the sequel or the first one?
0: The first one. So you went in to do the original movie.
2: So I, I've been working for about, um, steadily for about what, what, um, eight years or something. And, um, that's the first movie I did with Brian Levant. It was, you know, it was Spielberg. it, It was his project. And, um, I had done several, um, comedies before i'd have to look at my timeline to see what it was but uh, i had probably done something that brian liked and um and really all the only thing that we did in terms of the music was you know the main the main title in the first one in the second one we did a whole other elaborate thing with it but in the first one it it was I don't think any of the music said anything like the the animated series, except for the, you know, the iconic main title, which we, I arranged or we arranged, we had to mess around with it a little bit, but basically it was the same thing as the, as the, um, you know, as the, is the theme song to the, to the show. The rest of the movie, we sort of approached um, as a, you know, kind of that era, you know, crazy comedy you know yeah i mean sort of a live action animation animated feature really with a giant orchestra and you know lots of resources and lots of uh, of time and and you know and then and then the movie did well i don't think it did what they thought it was going to do but it did really well
0: yeah it was a big hit and then the
2: sequel they spent then the sequel they spent see if if it's a successful movie they just pour resources into the sequel sometimes the sequel has too much resources thrown at it and Mm. um but you know at least brian was the director of the sequel so um i've done a lot of sequels where it's a different director Mm. like the bill and ted sequel i did the nutty professor sequel i did um You know, the 102 Dalmatian sequel that I did, they all had different directors, but they all had a lot of money thrown at them because they were, you know, using, as you said, intellectual property that people already knew and they thought they had a good chance of it doing well. And I don't think any of them did all that well. I think the the Nutty Professor one did, but um, the clumps. Um, Yes, I
0: remember that one.
2: The Scooby Doo. I did a Scooby Doo sequel. Um, yeah. that was with Raja, that was with the same person. Uh, I don't think it did as well either. Um, you did anyway. Two... I, I, I guess so you want to talk about the Flintstones, so you know that's
0: okay. Uh, you did also did two Scooby Doo yeah. movies with Brian as well, didn't you? You did two yeah. that were he did directly for TV. Yes, oh. I did. Yes, you I did. did. Two, I don't really.
2: Yeah, I don't really view those as sequels as much as more of a TV episodes kind of. Um, I mean, they were full length and everything. Mm-hmm. But yes, I did do two of them. Yeah, we did a sequel also to A Christmas Story, too. I don't know if you knew that. I did. That was the, that the, was the you know, that movie. famous movie, A Christmas Story. I do. Yeah. Yes. Same, same thing. With no resources, it, all of those movies were just, you know, hardly any money at all, hardly any resources at all. So it was a, it was really a different thing than the, all the sequels that I was doing. You know, when you mentioned this, I sort of looked at all, you know, and I've really done a lot of sequels.
0: <laughs> I think so, that's great, though. I think it's really, really good. When you, know, you did, when you did the Flintstone sequel, um, Viva Rock Vegas, it's actually more like a prequel. Yeah. Did you approach the yes. project differently? To how you approached the original project? Did they give you more free way, um, way to what do what you wanted? Um
2: a little bit, but what was unique for us is that we did that whole sequence at the end. We had a great time um with the end of the movie. And I think the cast did as well. We pre-recorded this whole um combining the song, the sort of um the the song that uh uh what's his face, the beach page um, I'm blanking uh. Well, Alan Cummings sang it. You know, he was a you know he was the knockoff of Mick Jagger. I forget yeah. the character's name, but um, but uh, the Brian Wilson wrote the song that, that he sang that we arranged. So it was there was a lot more like set pieces in it that that we did in pre in pre record. Yeah, uh, there was none of that in the in the in the first one. It was just it was much more elaborate actually production wise. The the, the the sequel. And it was really, we really had a great time doing it. It looks, um, it feels so much I, I,
0: of a bigger project and it look, feels much more of a happier set. The cast seemed far more yeah. relaxed during the prequel than they did the original it, movies. I think the pressure was off. Yeah. So they just thought they're having a way of the time. They seemed yeah. much more relaxed. I
2: don't think it did very well though, did it? it, it no, it, it didn't uh, do very well at all. <laughs> yeah. So, I think, the 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 first one was a weird, pr- pr- like you said, it was it was a bit weird. I think Brian, I think that maybe was his. No, he had done one. He had done, I think, one film before. Didn't he do Beethoven the the dog movie, Brian Levant? He had done he, one other movie yeah. before, I think. So yeah, when you um... but but that g- generally generally it would be a different director. The the, the ones that I've done. Um, which is weird but Brian's was Brian's Brian and Raja the, the Scooby Doo were the same the same director so it it was sort of just a continuation um just more elaborate and more 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 set pieces but a, a generally i i mean it's a little bit of a different movie as you said they're younger yeah. and it, it's it's a little it's it it is sort of a prequel but i don't think we approached it all that different than the than the than the first one you know yeah you don't tend to go all that different if if successful so
0: no um so when you're working with a director and then you basically when you're so like you've mentioned before you did 102 dalmatians what was you didn't mm-hmm. do the first movie in the series and it had a different director mm-hmm. do you go do you mm-hmm. have to go back to the original movie when you did 102 directions? did you have to go back to 101 or did you just keep it as a new project
2: okay i loved 101 dalmatians the animated feature my brother and i tom we just loved that movie as kids yeah so i love the cruella Deville song so i used that a lot in the score yeah um i there was a there was another scene there was a cue called the uh, the, the midnight bark that was the sort of you know the telegram which was in the first movie so it's it is somewhat similar to that i think that was steve herrick and uh, michael Kamen that did and steve herrick who i'd worked with a bunch but not on that movie um but other than that it it was it, it's one of my favorite scores it's one of the it's one of the things i had the most fun working on i had a judge as i said i had huge resources i had a full course a big huge wow. orchestra uh, you know it it was it and I love the score and I, I put all kinds of classical music references in it but the main theme of it is the Cruella the Cruella theme yeah. which because I love I loved that that song and then and then there's the really gothic set pieces when you know when Cruella becomes you know back to herself and everything yeah. uh, you know with a big chorus and Um, and, and then that whole scene at the, the, the whole set piece at the end, when the, the dogs escape, you know, through the, the factory there and all that. So, um,
0: it was a great, but you know, that,
2: that was, didn't do very well either. Yeah. I love the film. I, 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 I was, I just, I, it just is weird because it just seemed like they they threw a lot of money at it, but they didn't seem to like believe in it and market it. Um, and it was a long time wasn't it after the first one it, it, yeah wasn't it like four or five years Is a big that's yeah. always a bad sign yeah yeah that's a bad sign always so
0: I remember watching that I actually saw that in the movie theater but to see like Glenn Close and Gerard Depardieu on, scre- on screen together and just being opposite each other because at the time mid late 90s they were huge stars they were big Hollywood stars. Yeah. And like just yeah. to see them on the screen sharing yeah. the screen time was absolutely fantastic. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I loved it. I, 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 again, that was a, that was, um, the director was, uh, Kevin Lima, who came from the, um, you know, Disney animation. Oh, really? Department. And really, I had started my career, um, uh, with this movie Brave Little Toaster, which was also a Disney animated feature, um, that Jerry Reese they were all Tal arts guys yeah. that were animators these guys and so was kevin i think kevin worked on brave little toaster but um i love those guys those animation guys are are great to work with they're really detail oriented they're very much about character um maybe they're a little sophisticated yeah. their taste for maybe what that should have been but i i don't know but um uh I loved Kevin and I had a great, I had a great time. And I, I still really like that music. It's really nicely recorded. Um, John Kurlander was the um, recording engineer. The whole, the whole process was great. And then of course the movie just went boom. You
0: know, oh, It's changed. such a shame when you so much hard work has gone into it. Your relationship with Brian has yeah. grown over the last 30 years. Do you enjoy working with each other? Is it a great partnership? I
2: love, you? we love Brian. Yeah. I love Brian. We love him personally, too, him and his wife, and he is a lovely family, and um, you know, he's just not, we're not working as much. It's just a weird, it's a really different world now. Um, I think I remember on the Flintstones that Brian used sort of a large writer's room television way of writing the first Flintstones script. Which that, I think was kind of unusual, uh, um, which was sort of an interesting. Now I wasn't really involved in that. I was more involved, as I said, in the sequel mm. of Flintstones because they're musical set pieces. But um, I know he had an unusual way of, of of coming up with the script and the jokes and 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 all that, because um, I think his background was um wasn't it, it Leave It to Beaver? I think he was a writer yes. on. Or, am I getting that right? Happy yeah. Days. Um. Yeah, and I worked with Brian, like you said. I mean, we did. A, you know, whenever we could, we worked together. We did Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Great, film. which was a that... Christmasy movie, and we had a we we had a great tank tanked that movie. And uh, but
0: now it's getting a it, massive it, following. The
2: uh, no no, no it, the
0: it's huge. It, it? it is it.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it it it. I think for its time, it was a little much is a little early uh, because it was so dark in a way uh, and crazy. Uh, I th- think five or 10 years later, it would have fared better. Yeah. A lot of this is timing too. So, you know.
0: Just to touch base, I just want also just, I, I, I'm i totally in love with your rearranging the, the, the score work you did on a West Side Story for Spielberg. Uh, last yeah. year or the year before it was just absolutely amazing yeah. like it's one of my favorite pieces of the cinema oh, ever thank you and it's just and I'm just I'm yeah. so I'm with it, you what was the what was it like going through that process with him and trying to take something what was iconic and then kind of like reinventing it for a modern day year
2: yeah West Side Story's been in my life from from nine years old when I listened to the Broadway cast album with my father which is kind of my father was Alfred Newman, um, of yes. you know, the Fox logo, and, and and he was very busy. And he was he was 54 years old when I was born. So he was in, not in great health, and he died um in 1970, um, right before I was 16. Um, but I remember that listening with him to Larry Kurt and Carol Lawrence. Uh, and then in high school, we did a production and I played. Piano in the orchestra, and then in my twenties, I we did a we had a semi-pros uh, uh, company in the summer. All of us that lived in the west side of Los Angeles that had gone to the same school, that all theater people, we would put on just a single show um, each summer. We did it for about seven years, and we you know union or we get a orchestra and there'd be a few professional actors and then mostly you know amateur you know but like a huge course we'd have like 200 people on stage it, it was a whole thing that we did you know for about 7 years after we graduated high school because we loved it so much so i did west side story then yes um and then um in 2011 um i started west side story the film the 61 film with live orchestra I premiered it at the Hollywood Bowl and then right after did it in New York and then right after did it in Chicago. And, you know, I did the whole circuit with it. And basically, and you know, I've done it 50 times maybe in the last, wow. you know, eight years. And so when Spielberg decided to do it, he, you know, he was going to have John, J- John Williams obviously yes. do it. But John, you know, it, it's not a writing, it it, it it was it's not even it wasn't even an arranging job per se, because you couldn't really go in like what he did for Fiddler on the Roof. You can't do that to West Side Story. It's a no. it's a canonic, iconic, it 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 bridges pop music and art and in and, and concert music. Yeah. Um the 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 West Side Story symphonic dances that Bernstein uh created in 61 from the from the show is a, is a canon piece in, in the, in the orchestral world, which is, you know, that's like a one in a million shot that a piece of music written would be even in the canon. I mean, you're competing with Beethoven and Brahms and blah, blah, blah. So it's not a typical show. So John suggested to Stephen to use me. So of course I, you know, wow. uh, uh, and, And, and so I met with Stephen, and we sort of, and Janine um, who just won a Tony Award for Kimberly Akimbo on Broadway, she mm-hmm. was brought on with Kushner because she's she's very close to Tony Kushner, who wrote the 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 screenplay, um, you know, with Spielberg. Yeah. Um, I met with them, and we kind of ch- we really talk about how we were going to approach it. And I knew the Bernstein estate is of all these composers that die like they, they generally that are that are contemporary that are you know 20th century, they have foundations or estates that own the material, the, the the IP. They own the IP, they rent it and they are responsible for cultivating and making sure that the IP is not diminished in any way yeah, so I had to contend with the Bernstein estate and with somebody there um that I'd worked with a lot because of the movie. So I knew how to work with them. and they they' they they can be tricky to work with. But what we came to was to do basically nothing. Mm. We used whatever extant sources that there were. So we had the Broadway cast score. yeah, we had. That we could draw from. We had the 61 movie we could draw from. And we had the symphonic dances, which we could draw from. So basically, we based everything on those three things. And then when Stephen needed something adjusted, I would write something. But the whole idea was to not even notice anything. That yeah. it wouldn't bump you at all, that it would sound inevitable. So, okay, he needs a beat here, he needs 10 bars here, he needs some underscore here. You know, so the underscore I would take from some of the 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 scene change music in the Broadway show. First of all, I know everything about this. Mm-hmm. It's just it's not that I am so good at this. I just West Side story, I just have lived with since I was eight years old. So I know where everything is. I know where all the recordings are and and mm-hmm. and blah blah, blah. So I just would pull in things and then whatever, you know, and the only thing that we did really different was somewhere. Yeah, because they had made Doc into a woman, his widow, et cetera, et cetera. And she Stephen first wanted her to do it acapella. Right. which didn't really work. And so we did an arrangement. Janine did some of it. And then I did I did most of it. And we felt that we could do that because in Broadway show, somewhere is in the ballet in the second act. And it's mm-hmm. sung by a singer in the pit. And it's generally like an opera singer. So on the Broadway cast album, it's a very famous uh, opera singer at the time named Riri Grist. And in the movie, it's sung the '61 movie. It's sung with Tony and Maria, but it's really truncated. It's 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 very much rearranged. So we thought, okay, somewhere we have some license to do something with, you know? Yeah. And and then we added the scherzo um, from the symphonic from the the ballet uh, the uh, of the Broadway cast uh, the the Broadway show. That was not in the movie where where she Maria Rachel Maria is is you know waking up after um you know getting her hair fixed and everything which was not in the sixty one movie yeah but was in the Broadway show so Stephen made a, you know, a a scene out of it because we wanted to include this piece of music which is in the symphonic dances and in the Broadway shows, and, and you can sort of see where I'm going. It it was yeah. more of, of, of a patchwork trying to make things together, making sure the tempos were right, making sure the singing was really accurate. It is the best, in my opinion, I'm with you, it's the best recording of West Side Story to date, out there. It,
0: I just want to say that, like, I went and watched it in the movie theater. So I live in Vermont and I'm British, so I'm kind of like yeah. out of the little bubble, bubble here. And one of my closest friends here, she is from Ecuador and she speaks Spanish. And we went and watched it together. And I'm a massive movie fan. I rip it apart. I look at kind of like music and sound and cinematography. And to experience the movie through her eyes, because Spielberg didn't use subtitles and the use of language. It's great. Yeah. It was just what watching the movie through her eyes was completely different to mine because she was laughing at things that I didn't understand. But I had the music. To understand what was going on in the sea, so yeah. we both got very yeah. different emotional journeys from the same part of the yeah. movie. And yeah. I just want to thank you for yeah. that because it was amazing. Oh,
2: I, I I appreciate that very much. I'm really I'm not one to toot my own horn, but I'm really proud of that. I I when I saw it, I'm like you, I, When I really saw it all together and heard the dub, it's the most beautiful dub. I, I don't know if you saw it in Atmos or not. I um, did. Yes, it's a it's a you know Spielberg is always a great mixer, a dubber. Yeah. You know what what we call dubbing when they put all the stuff together at the end. Yeah. Um. But this was like this was utterly masterful. And mm-hmm. and and believe me, it wasn't easy. I, I the the work that w- I I think all of us worked harder on that movie than almost any. All of us in the music department yeah. worked harder on this than we would you know and we got than we'd done on any movie. You know we got in the COVID stopped it for six months you know it was yeah it was a friggin' nightmare basically to finish it it just was we just dragged ourselves to the finish line you know and i'm sorry it didn't do better and that more people didn't see it yeah i i appreciate that i I really do
0: it lives fully in my heart and like yeah to see your morale of work there's another film that i have to talk to you about it's not a sequel it's not a remake but the Phantom from 1996, yeah, that score is my favorite yeah. superhero score of all time. Just the pipe work and the flute oh, work in it. That's... Oh my god, I loved it. even as a kid when yeah. I used to watch this film. I used to w- grow up watching them kind of old-fashioned superheroes into roll radio shows like The Shadow and The Phantom with my granddad, who had I used to look yeah. after me every single Sunday. We used to even used to sit and watch the old Zorro movies that your dad was involved with. And like that kind of
2: yeah yeah, Mark of Zorro yeah
0: yeah I, like to me that's proper Hollywood and even the not your the, the use of your music in the, in the Phantom I listen to that soundtrack every week it's a part of my favorite playlist oh. Oh. I absolutely adore it and just like the use of different layers in it because it just captures everything about the p- that period of superheroes in the 1940s and stuff it just kind of like it feels like a bit of an inner Jones yeah. it's got a bit of Batman in it it just it's such a yeah. masterful piece yeah. of work and thank you for doing that it's just like for oh, me thank you it's so oh, I
2: really appreciate that yeah I, it's so
0: great I appreciate um, it thank you just to be slightly self-indulged, I also just want to go off topic again and just mention how does it feel to be such a part of such an impactful uh, dynasty within Hollywood, within the music industry Yeah. and growing yeah. up in that world?
2: Yeah, I get, I get asked that uh, when I do do these things. I get asked that a lot. And quite honestly, um, we had a really normal kind of upbringing in the west side of Los Angeles. You know, Los Angeles was pretty non-hierarchical. You know, we, we lived in a very nice place. We all went to public school. We played sports. We did, like I said, we did theater, but a lot of music, a lot of training, but nothing seemed overwhelming. And I don't think we really, that I really thought about it all that much until I got um older. And, and I, I remember in college, I started really paying attention to what my father had done. Yeah. There were, there were a lot of, um, I, 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 I commuted to school. I went to school in Los Angeles too, to, to USC, uh, as a violin performance major. I was a professional violinist until, I don't know, by, to like t- around 30 years old. Um, but I from home, and um, other than practicing, you know, for hours, um, I, I did a lot of listening to my father's music, and he, of course, was p- passed away by then. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really got to know the music. So I, I, I sort of got to know him through the music, and I have own I, I, my admiration for what he accomplished has just grown exponentially each year as I get older and learn more about um, what's. What this is all about, I, I, the more I, the the more in awe and, and and admire. But I never felt, um, it it never felt like a weight on me at all. I I, uh, I never intended to be a composer anyway. I wanted to be a conductor, and I just sort of fell into it. So um, kind of like he did. He didn't really start writing till he came to Hollywood in 1930. Yeah. Um. He had been a, a Broadway conductor and you know he had done arranging but not not this and you know and they were figuring out what to do i mean they, they weren't even it wasn't even really hollywood in terms of music until maybe you know maybe uh king kong sort of started it and you know steiner and then when Korngold Korn came in 34 and then in 35 when he did um uh uh Robin Hood, I think it's 35. Yeah. Does it really start to sound like what we would think of as the as the the golden age? So he he was they were all learning, but he was learning how to write not not just, you know, what they should do in the movie, but like actually how to write uh, uh, music. So I, I, I never really thought about it when I was a kid. So it never was like a weight or, or, or anything. So it was it was kind of it was kind of ideal in a way. You know, we just mm-hmm we were able to have a childhood and, and have fun. And, and, you know, and LA was kind of laid back. It's a, it's a very, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a very, it's not laid back. Yeah. So it's not, it's, it's different now and, and, and I'm sure it it wasn't all laid back. I mean, but, but where we were on the West side, you know, and like everybody's going to public school and there's no private. you know, it's, 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 it was kind of a lovely time. So. That's sort of how I, 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 and I just, the more, I, I, I wish there was a good biography of Alfred Newman. Um, Fred Steiner, um, who was a colleague and wrote a lot of Star Trek television shows, among other things, uh, did write a, uh, a PhD dissertation, um, that is a biography of Alfred Newman, but God, it was 1988. I mean, it's so long ago. Um, you know, I think he deserves a he deserves a, a, a thoroughly researched
0: oh, biography, and because um, your mom was yeah, an actress, yeah. wasn't she? Your mom was an actress as well. Yeah, she was. A,
2: she was a Goldwyn girl. What is so that? Mean? She, yeah, she was in a couple of films, but she never she didn't have any aspirations. She was more of a model. Uh, you know, she was in a couple of um, you know Goldwyn movies. My father was working at Gold, Goldwyn um, in the thirties. That's he basically worked for Sam Goldwyn. Okay. I'm um, at UA um, in the uh, in the 30s before he went and worked for Zanuck, and, and uh, he he moved to Fox in 39, and then and then was at Fox to, through 59. So I think they probably met. They probably met uh, on the lot uh, at the UA lot at, at some yeah. point. Um, she was much younger than than he, um, and she was his third wife. So he had he had he had lived a lot of life before he he met her. You know, he had, had, he, had a, he had a horribly Poor upbringing, uh, you know, he was, t- they were terribly, you know, poor and ghettoized uh, uh, when he was a young, you know, person. So he just, they, he dragged them all out of it, out of poverty, basically. Wow. It's a, it's a real story, a, a, a Horatio Alger story of of rags, of rags to, to riches. And somehow, um, aside from being a wonderful composer and conductor, he was a superb manager. Administrator. He he was just superb at running a music department. That's that's really when you look at it, that's where Bernard Herman worked in the forties. Nobody would hire Bernard Herman. He's such a jerk. Alfred Newman didn't care if he was a jerk, you know. And and that's where John John in the fifties John Williams got his start. He was really good friends with Lionel, you know, my father's youngest brother in the in at, at that period. And Goldsmith came out, out of there. It just so many people got their start from Fox and Alfred Newman and and the family. So there's there's that legacy too of 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 the Mark Mark Newman, his his brother like in in the middle. You know, there was ten of them. Yeah, uh, was the first real kind of modern agent film composer agent. So he was John's agent during uh, Star Wars. Wow. Where, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, the the fees went from nothing to just strat- stratospheric. Yeah. Um, That's part of it too, and then Lionel took over after Alfred. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that I think that long, long story. No, it's great.
0: You need to, you need to get, you need to get someone to make a bio. That would be absolutely amazing to see. It's such a powerful story. Yeah, yeah. But
2: before I let you go, David,
0: just a question we like to ask all our guests: Do you have a certain unloved sequel? Maybe something you haven't worked on, or maybe something you have worked on. What would you say if you, a franchise or a film that
2: you you like? No, I I told you, I I love that 102 Dalmatians. It's one of my favorite movies, and it's one of my favorite scores that I've done. I have a a great fondness for that. I can actually listen, you know, I, I have a difficulty listening to my own music, but that one I can listen to. I really like it so
0: that might we might have to cover that in a future episode okay. and have you back on but thank you so much for your time today i okay. really appreciate it okay. thank you david great Take care. all right great thank you Bye-bye. great
2: talking to you
1: that was brilliant i'm so excited that you managed to get david newman on oh my online. god
0: that's it was such an honour and I was very, very nervous doing it because it was kind of like, we've done a few interviews <laughs> on the podcast, but I kind of was shitting my pants talking to him because he's someone it, that... It did sound I've like always... all your fanboy dreams come true. It does, because I always think music such an important part of film and to have yeah. him be able to talk to somebody whose music I've listened to from such a long period of my life. And he's yeah. not like the, the John Williams or the Hans Zimmer's of... Of the world. He's somebody who's got a moray a of work and he's such he's such a nice guy. And I'd like to talk to somebody of, a, I listen to the Phantom soundtrack every single week. And I have it on my playlist and it's one of my favorite superhero themes, like theme music ever. And he does such such great drama. To basically tell him about that, um, it was quite funny because I was well, off recording, I was telling how much of a fangirl you were for um, Galaxy Quest.
1: Yeah, I can't believe you didn't ask him about Galaxy Quest. I'm quite offended.
0: <laughs> I felt too much in the deep hole about uh, West Side Story, as you've just heard. <laughs> <interesting> <laughs> you
1: felt like you couldn't really go from West Side Story to Galaxy Quest.
0: Well, I know. It was just kind of like, it was such an interesting conversation to listen to him talk about that because, like, you know, yeah, sure. he, you could hear, hear the passion in his voice and how, you know, it was such a passion project for him. And I yeah. know that it's a remake and. But it's one of of the most beautiful pieces of cinema that you could ever witness. The use of shadows and the use of music within that film is just mind-blowing, and the use of language is just great. But yeah, it was really, really good.
1: Lovely. And if our listeners want to follow him online or find out what he's up to now, how can they do that?
0: So you can get hold of him or follow what he's doing on Instagram, what is david.newman.composer. Or on Twitter, what is D Newman M five. Or you can just basically keep up with his body of work at David Lewis newman.com And that's Lewis spelled in L-O-U-I-S. Ah,
1: oh, lovely. So there we go. We can all
0: go and like and follow. Because it sounds yes. like he's And so do, because very he's an interesting guy. He is an interesting guy. And you know, I would like to see him get more. Recognition for the body of work he has Maybe we'll have him back on for 102 Dalmatians Because we freaking love that yeah. soundtrack as well We should do that Yes.
1: Mm. Maybe he'll come we on will. with Glenn
0: Close Could you imagine oh, David and Glenn <laughs> That would be the dream Honestly wouldn't it? you get
1: him one person from Hollywood
0: And he's like yeah
1: I own them all now I'll get Glen Close on speed dial It's not going to happen
0: I'll it's have to wait till after the, after the strike I don't think we're going to get very much until the strike's over From no. now on No and that's fine. That's yes, absolutely. Fine. We support them 101%. So 102%. Collab. Like 102 dimensions. Oh, you see what I did oh, there? Sorry, there. I keep I get... cutting you
1: off with my crappy jokes.
0: Oh, you can tell you've had a week of um, dad jokes and being with your children too much. That's probably three weeks. Mm. Uh, not uh, your kid. <laughs> I was going to say, they're not
1: that bad. <laughs> I know you've made <laughs> the decision not to have children, and I respect that, but honestly, <laughs> they're
0: not that bad. I just see the uh, the the the, um, the dead glaze behind your eyes when I phone you during the summer holidays on FaceTime. Hi, Claire, how are you? <laughs> oh, okay. I'm oh, okay. Let's just get them back to school. So, Claire, <laughs> what did you think of the movie?
1: Well, do you know what? I've got quite a lot to say about the movie and I'm just conscious of time. And I a little birdie told me that you might have another little cheeky guest up your sleeve. So a little birdie, I or was wonder...
0: It- was it a dick to bird maybe a to bird oh see
1: oh, you've, so got you've got the dad got jokes as well started. it's not just me yeah, um i that. wonder if we should put a pin in this and uh really go for the old
0: two-parter yeah really are you guys yeah. ready for to come back next Shall week we... for the second half of flintstones and viva rock vegas that's what you're going to get. Who'd
1: have thought we'd get a cliffhanger ending
0: into a <laughs> podcast episode about Viva Rock Vegas? Viva Come back next week and find out who Rock
1: Michael's Vegas. other guest is.
0: <laughs> yeah, please do. Please do. <laughs> because I shat myself once again, and you can hear all about it.
1: <laughs> not on the recording,
0: please. No, no, no. You want to literally until. hear that. No, no. exactly. <laughs> so, guys, Claire, how can people get in contact with us if they want to know more about what's coming up in the project? Oh. Or- See, I'm lost because we don't normally do this in the middle of the episode. No. So let me pull up
1: my uh, my little mini script there. So, um, yeah, make sure you are liking and subscribing so you don't miss any episodes, particularly if you don't want to miss next week's uh, second part of our Flintstones in Vigo, Rock, Rock Vegas, two-parter, make sure yeah. you're subscribed. Um, and tell us what you think of the movie. Um, tell us what you think of uh, Michael's David Newman interview. It's very exciting. Um, you can leave a comment. You can email us on unlovedsequels at gmail.com and you can find
0: us on all the socials at unlovesequels So it's goodbye from me, Michael, until next week. And from me, Claire, for now. So have a yabba dabba do time and see you next week, guys. Oh my God. <laughs>